Hello, and welcome to the Cannabis Corner. I am your host, Joshua Braff, and I'm here with my partner, Farmer Adam Teitelbaum. Today we are talking about veterans and how they connect to the world of cannabis as medicine. I was thinking about how I might approach this topic because it is vast. It obviously has facets that connect to family life, Americans, government, the decision to be a soldier in America as a young boy, what that means to a young American boy. And I was thinking about Ron Kovic and uh, born on the 4th of July and it was a long time ago, and I remember it was the beginning of my true empathy for the veteran. It changed Veterans Day for me. But it's important to note that it was a performance that had me in this level of empathy and thinking about the American soldier differently. And what that means is our take, when you're not a soldier, is given to us in the movies and on TV. And I think from the level of empathy from the masses in America – we do not see the true grit of what it means to be a soldier, a soldier in battle. We're well aware that there are many generations of men who were either drafted or signed up to represent their country. But there's a disconnect in what a person who hasn't gone through these experiences, there's a disconnect between the notion that you understand the grit of being a combat soldier or a soldier of any kind, and what that soldier might need when they return to society. So famously, Vietnam seemed to bring cannabis to America in ways that it hadn't been here, and so began a problem. The notion that it was derogatory being brought by these men who had to go into these places that were so inhuman, things that you can't unsee. And then, of course, they famously came home to a reaction that was less than grand. We've come a long way with respect to soldiers. But in the news lately, the notion that a soldier with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, might be getting some relief from some form of intake of cannabis as medicine, and that lately something had lifted in the government or in the stigma from the feds that said, we agree that you are on your way to finding the stigma lifted, and so that soldier could find some peace beyond anyone else's thoughts about what they should or shouldn't have beyond anybody's thoughts that, oh my God, now this soldier's on another substance. We're looking for harmony in the now, relief in the now. So I am going to introduce two veterans. One, Ryan Miller, the co-founder of Operation EVAC, which means educating veterans about cannabis. And we also have Scotty, a Marine, who is calling from Fort Collins, Colorado. So we're going to have a discussion, be open about it see what the four of us can discuss that might bring some light to the masses as far as what a soldier who has PTSD might need from his government, from his doctor. The mission of Operation EVAC is to support the growth and healing of veterans through mutual assistance, personal development, and community service. I'll have Ryan start. Uh, Ryan, tell us a little bit about your life and your connection to Operation EVAC. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. So I graduated high school in 1998 and enlisted in the Marine Corps while I was still a senior in high school and served from 1998 to 2002, primarily in Okinawa, Japan. I also deployed to Brunei, Bali, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines, Hong Kong, Thailand, Australia, and Korea twice. 
I didn't mention Iraq nor Afghanistan, which is what most folks ask me about when I mention I was a veteran. So with that said, I feel some sense of dissatisfaction with my degree of service. Uh, since I'm not a combat veteran, uh, Scotty could probably attest to this, amongst Marines, it's arguable if you're an actual Marine or not. So I've decided to dedicate the remainder of my life to serving veterans. And this is what I'm pleased and grateful and honored to do through Operation EVAC, provide recurring social support groups for military veterans at cannabis dispensaries. What an interesting approach for you coming out of your experiences. It seems as though you have dealt with some guilt for not being a combat veteran and the notion that perhaps why would you, Ryan Miller, a non-combat Marine, be delving into cannabis as medicine? Can you talk to that? Absolutely. You're exactly right. Guilt is exactly what I'm feeling. My anxiety and depression come from not experiencing trauma. Since I didn't die for my country, every day that I'm alive, I did to some degree. Now through service, dedicating my life to continuing to serve my community, my veteran community specifically, really in a nonviolent capacity, curating camaraderie, restores that sense that I am in service to my troopers. Some say that since I'm not a combat veteran, maybe I'm less equipped to serve these folks. And really, I'm thankful for the inclusivity of the community that's enabled me to serve in such a capacity. Scotty, can you weigh in on this? So, you... mm-hmm. Go ahead, Adam. What I wanted to say, uh, Ryan, was do you find the veterans that you're dealing with and with cannabis are people using it for PTSD or people using it for cancer or migraines or just to relax or anxiety? Is it a variety of things or is it more one area over another that you see veterans needs for cannabis? You're exactly right. There's such a myriad of symptoms that cannabis provides relief for. Providing that homeostasis in the body, I think, is what's important to mention. Uh, and the veteran community is diverse in itself. I serve, you know, Vietnam veterans and before that, all the way up to OIF, OEF veterans today. And so there's a range of different afflictions from insomnia, appetite, PTSD, of course, anxiety and depression, pain, especially in the elder community. And so, yes, cannabis is uniquely positioned to serve such a wide range of illnesses that veterans suffer from from their military service. Scotty, can you weigh in a bit? We want to hear a little bit about your thoughts hearing Ryan. Um, Well, we actually have similar circumstances, only just going to move some dates. I'm also a non-combat former Marine, but I don't have any guilt about it. I think it's all a part of a master plan, and you really don't see the big guys will until you look back and you can reflect. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? I was one of those really gung-ho Marines. I had 16 I was sworn in on a one-year delayed entry program in the Marine Corps. So on my 17th birthday, I left. <clears throat> At the time, to be quite honest, it was to get out of the house. Mom and Dad didn't have money for college, so and I had an uncle that was a Marine, and so I did some reading and the history that studied all four or five branches, and I signed up. So I uh, was in artillery. So if I don't hear a question right today, I've got my hearing aids in, thanks to the VA. But uh, gotcha. I've, I've got a lot of lost hearing because back then they didn't provide any hearing protection because apparently they didn't know about long-term exposure to really loud noises. So, yeah, uh, my story goes, I get out, I finally end up getting married, three kids, and end up being a yardmaster. 
for a big railroad out in the Midwest. Been 25 years there, doing well. Of course, that time I had been hurt on the job, so I ended up with three back surgeries. Now I have this lower lumbar fuse in my cervical and my spine and my neck, C4 and 5 fuse. So pain is something I feel every morning when my feet hit the ground. So in different circumstances, but I don't feel... I've talked to some other Marines that didn't serve, and I've never heard one other Marine say, well, because you didn't pull a trigger. You know, figure there's like 1,200 people actually behind every soldier, every Marine on the ground. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, most of the service is not on the front lines doing the combat thing. And if it was God's will for you not to get shot or not to lose an arm, then so be it. And I applaud you for reaching out to veterans and enlightening them on what all the Illinois can do. We're just beginning to find out what they can do. I was also stationed in Okinawa, Japan, for a while. I caught the Westpac cruise with the Navy, West Pacific cruise, for six months. So nice. it was quite uncommon at night to go to the rear of the boat and smoke Indonesian for rec <laughs> recreational purposes. So that was probably, as a young man, my drug of choice. I wasn't ever into street alcohol or anything. So then I couldn't, of course, be in a railroad and get in whiz quiz for 25 years. So then I came back to that once I was able to retire mm -hmm. and moved to Colorado. I knew that things were happening and I could treat myself medicinally. Now, I'd like to ask you another question, Scotty. Isn't there a worry or a fear of using cannabis and maintaining your veterans' benefits? They sent a letter saying, um, well, they actually had me come in for your analysis, which was really weird. And they came oh. back. Proving I wasn't doing any street drugs, and I was honest with them. I told them I was treating my pain and anxiety for uh, with cannabis, and they have it in the record. But they told me if you ever need stronger pain medicine, that they're always trying to push on me. Every time I go, they're wanting to know my pain level. Can I do I need pain meds? I said, tell them no. It's almost like that they're they're not mad, but they're not real happy that the cannabis is taking care of my pain and they're not able to push all the big pharma, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a time, but now it's in my record, and my doctor said, look, you're one of a thousand Marines that are treating yourself like this. As long as you're not on any street drugs, there's no problem. So we can see the disconnect. That's very encouraging to hear that, you know, because I'm of the opinion that every veteran should be given a pack of cannabis seeds, to be honest with you. You deserve that for serving our country. You deserve to be able to have some peace, whether it's uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, etc. So to me, I think the federal government should be giving out cannabis or cannabis seeds and giving it to every veteran as part of a thank you for your service. And by the way, both of you gentlemen, I applaud you and thank you both so much uh, for your service to our country. Oh, I want to uh, reiterate that. Thank you so much for the uh, sacrifices you've made. I think it's important, as Scotty is saying, the docs would be very happy to prescribe something that they said would be good, and so wary of cannabis as medicine that right next to the acronym PTSD is SUD, Substance User Disorder, which seems to be attached to those who are using cannabis and appear addicted, meaning those who are taking on cannabis and finding relief are not then free of cannabis in their process. But when it comes to pharmaceuticals and the doc saying, this is what you need, young man, there is no talk of that being an addictive substance. And I think we know now, because we've evolved enough, it's 2017 here, that those pharmaceuticals are a real risk. 
and might very, very well be needed in some combination with a holistic regimen. But you can't tell us now that those chemicals aren't going to lead that person who has made the sacrifice, who said, I'm going to stand out there on that wall, whether you're on the wall or not. And so it's time for the language that suggests a natural herb is a way to come in the door. And what's with the name calling and the acronyms and the, and the trouble with the doc who's positive his answer's best because he just left a sales rep? We'll have more with our interview with Marines Ryan Miller and Scotty in a future episode of The Cannabis Corner. Way to Grow, Colorado's best grow store for hydroponics and organic gardening, with stores in central Denver, Boulder, Colorado Springs, Fort Collins, Lakewood, Silverthon, and Pueblo. Speak with our expert growers or shop our huge selection of lights, soil, nutrients, and hydroponic equipment. Way to Grow is specialized in supplying the gardening and greenhouse community with the tools and knowledge required to successfully grow healthy plants of all varieties, indoor and out. At Way to Grow, we put the success of our customers first, knowing that our future depends on their success. For this reason, we created true one-stop shops for everything needed for the planning, creating, and maintenance of organic gardens and all hydroponics. The future is now. Be green with Way to Grow. And now more with our interview with Sarah Payan and Dr. Rachna Patel. Sarah is the Director of Education for the Apothecarium in San Francisco. She is also a stage 3 colon cancer survivor who utilized cannabis treatment in a recovery. Dr. Rachna Patel is a physician whose practice is out of Walnut Creek, California. So today we'd like to talk a little bit about guidelines for dosing. Dr. Patel? I would say appropriate to the person. Okay. I'd also add that what a lot of researchers that I've spoken with have realized is that the older we get, the less we need. That's interesting. So when in talking about children, you that would be the person who is seeing the biggest dose? That's what they're saying. A lot of the oil therapists that I've spoken with have said that for children, there are definitely high, higher dosages. But then as we get older, and it does depend on personal metabolism and the type of cancer, we see people using less and less and being able to do the same kind of work. And Dr. Patel, I remember you talking about that, that less is certainly more. Yeah, I would, I would be careful with that because what I found is that in, in children especially, so, it, you know, dosing varies highly from patient to patient, but in children especially, you want to be careful because there have been cases in Colorado with um, accidental overdoses on marijuana where children have come into the emergency room overdosed, and, uh, in comatose is, is, uh, is what I want to say. Mm-hmm. So I stay away from generalization when it comes to dosing, and it's very individual per patient. I'm not even telling patients how much to take. I walk them through a methodology so that they can figure out what the right dose for them is so that they're getting the medical benefits without experiencing any side effects from the marijuana, and that is your optimal dose. Don't you think that for some patients and people this can be confusing because, you know, usually with medicine, you get a prescription, there's a dosage, here's how much you take. And now some of the responsibility, you know, is being put into the patient's hand. I mean, with cannabis, it's it's been that way for so many of us. But for those who might be a little bit reluctant to try this as a therapy, you might say, well, wait, if you're telling me I have to figure out the dosage, I'm, I'm not really sure here. What, what do you say to people yeah. with concerns like that? So, 
I completely agree, right? So that's why we need more more medical trained medical professionals in the field to help guide patients. But I'm really not putting it into the patient's hands. I'm giving them a very specific methodology that this is exactly what you need to do to figure out your dosing. So that makes it a lot easier for them. They're not going through a trial. They are going through trial and error process, but within very certain bounds that makes the process safe for them. So do you, do you discuss microdosing with, with your patients? So this whole concept of microdosing, I feel like it's kind of made up. <laughs> but ah. see, it's not even a medical term, microdosing. So I don't even know like, what people are referring to when they say that. So let me, let me uh, walk you through what I walk my patients through. So basically, there's a trial and error day where, that um, I'm helping them uh, and giving them a methodology to figure out what their dose is. Now, at the end of the day, once they figure out what that dose is, they stick to that dose, whether it's if they need it on an as-needed basis or whether they need it on a regular basis. And all of that depends on the medical condition that they're treating. But, yes, in complete agreement with you, um, most of the patients that come into my office are telling me, look, I use this and I have side effects from it, and quite frankly, I don't want to experience side effects. I just want to get the medical benefits from it. So, yes, I think in, in terms of, of medically trained professionals, there's not enough um, guidance that they're providing to their patients. But, again, there's also lack of knowledge and experience. And I took a great risk in entering into this field. There's a lot of physicians out there that are worried about what sort of risk it has on their, on their license. So I am hoping to eventually create training programs for other you know, physicians, nurses, uh, physician assistants, et cetera, in the future. But I feel like I do have it down to science with the patients that I've treated. So this is very interesting, this, this other topic that you just brought up of training other doctors. I'm assuming there in that training that would include um, the endocannabinoid system because the ECS isn't taught in, in I want to say, like 99% or more of medical schools in the country. Right. Yep. It's nope. I never learned about it. Uh, everything that I've learned so far has been through spending hours and hours on PubMed.gov and um, just digging through study after study. A lot of what I learned in medical school uh, definitely applies to how I practice clinically. Like, for instance, when it comes to pharmacology, knowing knowing the half life of the medication, knowing the onset of action, knowing the duration, knowing how it gets. Uh, process in the body. All of that helps me figure out uh, how to guide patients. But, um, but yeah, when it comes specifically to marijuana, the endocannabinoid system, and how all, all of that works, my knowledge has been derived from, from, I probably spend a good 20 hours a week just hanging out on PubMed.gov. It's not available, this information, even for all this interest and um, demand, the uh, fact that, that, that the endocannabinoid system is not mentioned in medical school kind of feeds into the notion of how vague some of this has been, making sure it's a Schedule One drug, not telling anyone that hemp can also be paper and clothing and all kinds of materials. So we find ourselves still in this, in this area of, hey, let's not even talk about it. you got to be kidding. This is medicine. This is also... Rope. This is also of great sleep aid. 
So I think it, people have to take it in stride as this tsunami of information comes crushing down. And then it's hard to maybe even find a doctor that would say, yeah, you know, CBD, if they know what that is, could be very, very helpful for you. And um, there's such a stigma that you, Dr. Patel, just said that you have some concerns. Can you address those concerns again? Don't you feel that your community backs you to the extent that you shouldn't be worrying about the feds? Well, yes, there's backing of the community. But, you know, here's the other thing. Um, I I researched this thoroughly before I, I went into it. And specifically in California, there's a case in 2004 that basically protected physicians from when they discussed medical marijuana as a treatment option with patients. I forget the name of the case. But, you know, the law went into place in 1996, but it wasn't until 2004 until it was actually that, you know, physicians uh, were protected in, in discussing this uh, as a treatment option. I think in between, you know, there have been quite a few physicians that started way before I did that took quite a bit of a, of a beating, you know, both in the public eye and also from, from the medical board as well. So I'm grateful for them for they even took a greater risk than I have because I you know, happened to get into it at a point in time where it was beginning to become more and more accepted. But, you know, to to practice starting in 1996, early 2000s, they sort of set the stage, you know, they they had to deal with a lot at that point in time. But here's what's interesting. I started my practice in Kualanuk Creek in 2004. You know, and one of the ways that you start, start, establish a practice is that you go out to other offices, uh, uh, physician's offices, and you just let them know that, hey, you know, I'm a physician specializing in this area. If, you know, you have any patients that um, have questions or anything like that, then, you know, send them over my way sort of thing. And I could not get past the office managers. Basically, you know, I sort of just got the door slammed in my face. But what's interesting now is that I am now getting referrals from doctors that I don't even know. Um, And all the way from, like, San Diego, California, which is a bit shocking to me. I'm also getting phone calls from doctors asking me questions like, hey, I'm out in Texas. You know, I have such and such a patient. We we were discussing medical marijuana. You know, what are your thoughts? So I think the pivotal point was in Colorado legalized marijuana for recreational use. And I think since then, there's been an upward uh, growth curve. I have an interesting personal experience. I first got my medical card here in Colorado in 2005. My internist, my primary care physician, wouldn't have a part of it saying, you know, he risked, uh, you know, the DEA coming down on him. He could lose his medical license. And I understood his concerns. And so, you know, there were always these places, like I'm sure there are in California as well, where, you know, hey, you know, come on in, you know, and get a get a med card evaluation. And, you know, so you went to yeah. another doctor uh-huh. to just get your card. And now I want to say it was a few years ago that I was seeing my internist and I could overhear him in a room with a patient next to me recommending medical cannabis for this woman. 
And he came, and I was laughing because I thought, oh, my gosh, this is so funny. I remember when he yeah. you know, didn't want to touch it. And he came in, and I said, hey, Doc, good to see you. Um, and we're, I, mean, he, I consider him a friend. He's a family friend. Our kids grew up playing soccer and football and stuff together. And I said, you know, it's really refreshing to see the progress you've made in terms of how you think of cannabis and uh, medically. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, and he basically forgot that he was so nervous about it and, you know, not wanting to talk about it and against it and to now where he freely recommends it uh, to his patients where he sees fit. So there has been a huge change. We've seen that here, too. Yeah, and hopefully we'll continue to make progress, you know. Yeah, I'd just like to see more studies being done because I just, I run into people all the time who are using it, treating ailments successfully. And, you know, I speak to somebody like my father, who's a physician, and he'll say, well, you know, how do you, you don't know that there's a placebo effect, there's no study there. When I tell him about, you know, meeting a veteran who's been treating his cancer himself with cannabis and uh, CBD oil and the tumor keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and you know and my father says well you know where's the study where's the study so I'm waiting for a group to really knock down Congress's door uh, and get them to act since the DEA won't so that we can get more research more studies I mean and find out the true benefits that this plant holds. Sarah, I wanted to talk about the apothecarium and what that environment is like as far as understanding. You can see, depending on the community you're in, you could be, people are as scared of cannabis as they are of any recreational drug. And then we come all the way to the West Coast, or you don't have to come all the way to the West Coast now, to find a place like the apothecarium. What's that environment like in there? The view of the ownership when we opened was, we wanted a place that if your mom got sick, she'd be comfortable coming in. Um, I have to say for myself personally, because I was a patient at the apothecarium in the first year that they were open, I didn't join as a staff member until the second year. And I found it really refreshing to go somewhere where there wasn't somebody at the front door looking imposing that when you were feeling sick and you're going to the bar that they didn't treat you with kid gloves and they gave you answers. A lot of times when I, my first dispensary experience, there was a very large imposing man at the front door and, you know, I was not feeling good. I was kind of like, okay, great. This is going to be, you know, wonderful. And so being intimidated at the door was not fun. Going and seeing um, my bud tender and having them really be afraid to give me any sort of suggestions or education around what I was taking was also really frustrating. Without having any sort of framework to start with, trying different things was hard. I mean, at my first meeting with my oncologist, I had half a drink called Irish Moss, which was pretty strong. I got so high. By the time I got there, I was like, you know what? I can't have this conversation today. You know, I had actually taken it to kind of relieve my anxiety around the idea that I was going to be doing chemo. And because my mother did the clinical trials on the type of chemo that I was going to be doing, I was also very afraid because I knew all everything that was going to happen with it. I was really disappointed in myself for taking more than I probably should have, but also for not being able to get the answers that I needed. So when I went to Apothecarium, I felt very supported. And I was given education that I was able to work off of to learn how my body worked. And that's one of the things that we really do at the store. When I got there, I started to do more work around that and around you know being able to 
uh, listen to patients and hold space and to be able to coach them and help them empower themselves by educating them to make the decisions for themselves, which is really super important because we've got people coming in on the worst days of their lives. This is a big change happening where there's going to be places where you can feel comforted and the person at the door is a big deal and the tone of the bud tender is a very big deal. It's nice to see that these places exist and the people who are coming in are in the worst states of mind and fear. So you're sick and you have fear and there's a stigma and at the same time some form of cannabis is helping you and all you want to do is feel less anxious so that you can settle into being the patient that you are. And so the sensitivity that comes from these environments is in great contrast to some of the language coming out of the law or the government that suggests, oh, you're just an outlaw looking to have fun and get high. So you can see where the crossroads is difficult for those who are empathetic and altruistic in the realm of helping people sleep, helping people with a, a migraine is not just a headache. You're in the fetal position with the lights out. And this is, there's a whole community of elderly people dealing with it and, and being prescribed quickly to chemicals. So we are not asking a ton. We're saying the new real is a very attractive one in the realm of treating humans the way they should be. Well, I think, too, that we are starting to take it more seriously. Like, even at the apothecarium, we don't call our staff bud tenders. They're patient consultants. They're very well trained. Uh, we have hours and hours of experiential research from all the feedback that we get from patients. And we're walking chemistry experiments. We all react very differently, just like Rachna had said. You know, it's it really dosage. There is no one-size-fits-all. But our reputation is such that patients go talk to their doctors. And so in turn, I do a lot of um, trainings and education for a staff at Kaiser and at UCSF. I have nurses from Stanislaus, student nurses that come once a semester to do a training with me. UCSF, I teach some of their palliative care uh, pharmacology students when they come in. And we really try to give them more information about what their patients are taking and how it's reacting in their bodies because these conversations really they need to be able to partner with their medical professionals and have these conversations. That's very important, too, is that uh, the culture of, of cannabis comes with all kinds of language, and perhaps in the new real, being somewhat buttoned up can be helpful with language and tone. That's sort of one of our philosophies here. Uh, Dr. Patel, have you visited the apothecarium, or do you know of other environments that you were involved in like that? So I haven't visited, but here's the unfortunate thing. There are laws in place that prevent a physician from having um, uh, mainly a financial relationship with a dispensary. And I think to steer clear of any sort of like halo of doubt, most doctors just don't have any relationship with a dispensary. So it sort of cuts off an opportunity of communication that could be there otherwise. Oh, okay. It sounds like there's still some evolving to do. <laughs> That's true. It's, it's the same thing here in Colorado. I wanted to ask Sarah a question about the apothecarium. As recreational cannabis is coming to California, is your dispensary going to remain medical? Is it going to incorporate recreational cannabis? What's going to be happening there? I believe that we will have some locations that will incorporate both, but our heart is in the medical. 
We do a lot of physician outreach. I actually do a lot of tours for physicians. Nobody is attached to us financially, uh, but they do like to learn, you know, what we're talking about and see what a dispensary is like and see what their patients are experiencing. Our heart and soul is with the medical because we're in the heart of the Castro where there's a lot of our patients who are HIV positive, which is a huge part of the medical movement. And we get a lot of patients that come with cancer as well. It's not so much that doctors are referring them to us, but patients are talking to one another and saying, you know, if you want to have a professional experience with somebody who can hold space for you and actually, you know, talk to you about options, we are one of the premier places to have those kind of conversations. We joke that we're the nerds of the weed industry, but my staff and myself are very passionate about how it works in the body and hearing back from patients and being able to you know, relay stories to other patients so they can help themselves and internally just talking about the different ways that the cannabinoids and the terpenes are reacting in the body and the different ways of medicating and how that affects patients in, in different ways. Sarah, could you tell us about how people could reach uh, you or get information uh, from anybody from all over the country who may be feeling that, wow, your bridge to sampling or, or getting knowledge on cannabis as medicine is not a very good bridge. Obviously, in a social media world, you could be talking to Sarah or someone at the apothecarium uh, right away. So give us some info. Sure. So in addition to being an educator, I'm also a writer. Uh, you can get a lot of my articles on Cannabis Now. You could follow me on Instagram, and that would be Sarah, S-A-R-A, Mitra, M-I-T-R-A, Payan, P-A-Y-A-N. Um, and there is also a link to email me on there. I get emails from all around the world. And in addition, I have my consulting work that I, I get referrals from doctors, and I'll work with patients privately in conjunction with their physicians. I want to thank Dr. Rakshana Patel out of Walnut Creek, California, for her time and her expert language, and also to Sarah Payan, the vice chair of the San Francisco State Legalization Task Force and the director of education at the Apothecarium in San Francisco. I'd love to always have you back on. Um, you guys are invaluable as far as your knowledge and language. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Always, Rachna. Interest in the cannabis corner has been growing swiftly, and we're so pleased to see so many people are looking for truthful answers in this realm. Your thoughts and queries are important to us and help us cover the most pressing and latest issues, and of course help us with our goal to reach people in zip codes in which cannabis is flat-out illegal. If you'd like to advertise with The Cannabis Corner, please visit our website, thecannabiscorner.net, and tell us about your company. 60 and 30 second ad spaces are available and also the opportunity to sponsor an episode. Check us out on Instagram where we are posting the latest articles regarding cannabis in 2017. We'll see you next time on The Cannabis Corner. Mm -hmm.